Thank you, Children's Choir, for your ministry and music. Very good job singing. And thank you to Kendra and Greta for leading them. I think it's such a neat thing that we have so many uh, children and teens involved within our uh, worship service. I think of last week as well with the encore singing. So I think it's a great opportunity for our children to be involved in the service uh, and really make this church their own. So uh, thank you, Children's Choir, for your ministry and music. Well, on to our message, I uh, want to begin by saying there are, there are two times that I, I can think back um, through my years of living, two times that I can remember being shocked that something was in the Bible. I had read my Bible through, I had grown up in this church where I had been taught the Bible, many of the Bible stories uh, within this church. I would even taught the Bible to some degree up to these points and yet, I can remember two times in specific that I had either forgotten uh, about these, these stories that we find in the Bible, or maybe they just passed right over me. I heard them, but they went in one ear and out the other. One of them is found in 2 Kings. Okay, I was sitting in a seminary course, so this was, um, I guess it would have been in, in my early 20s, uh, and I don't remember what exactly we, we were learning about. I think we were probably working our way. It was an Old Testament course, so we were working through the Old Testament. But my professor spoke of the time when the kingdom of Israel was exiled from the land, from their land by Assyria, and how the king of Assyria took some people from other nations and placed them within the land of Israel, and how those people did not obey God within the land of Israel. So... And this was the part that I did not remember ever learning about. God sent lions among them and attacked them and killed them because of their disobedience to the Lord. That caught my attention. I had not remembered that story. Lions sent by the Lord. Well, the other story that I was unfamiliar with is actually found in our passage this evening. It was, in, it was one of my orientation days at Lancaster Bible College, and it was just randomly, we were sitting in the cafeteria, we were sitting, um, eating dinner, I believe, and, and one person I was sitting with mentioned the time that God almost struck dead, or struck down dead, Moses. God almost struck Moses down dead as he was headed back to the land of Egypt. Again, that caught my attention. I thought, Boy, I don't remember reading or hearing about that story, that ever happening in the Bible. So tonight we find the time that God almost struck Moses down dead. Which considering all that we've seen in Exodus, all that we've learned concerning Moses, I think this should be surprising to us. All right, so let me just review what we've found concerning Moses. We've seen Moses uh, was saved as a child. He was born at a time where all of the baby boys had a, a death sentence. They had a death threat upon their head. They were born and they should be killed. And that mandate came from the top, from the top of Egypt, from Pharaoh himself. Well, Moses' mother, she decided she wasn't going to take any part in this. She wasn't going to let her child be killed. So she conjured up a plan where uh, she took Moses she discovered where Pharaoh's own daughter bathed, and she placed Moses in a basket in the Nile River where Pharaoh's daughter would bathe. And the daughter discovered this basket, 
and adopted Moses as her, her very own child. She spares one whom her dad wanted killed. So Moses grew up in, in a palace, in the palace of Egypt. He grew up as an Egyptian, and, and Moses ends up fleeing for safety and living in Midian for many years due to his murder of an Egyptian. And last week we found Moses was the one whom God would send to be the leader, would be the, the deliverer of the Israelite people. And we saw last week after much re resistance, much reluctance, and even refusal, God and Moses come to a scenario where, where Moses will go, but he's going to go with his brother. His brother will go alongside him to the land of Egypt. So after all of this, okay, after all that we've learned about Moses, God would try to kill Moses, the one whom he had spared at birth, the one whom he brought safely to Midian, the one whom he showed up to in a burning bush and it would place the, a call on his life to deliver the people of Israel. God would then try to kill him. This is surprising, and, and I think for really tracking with the story, this, this seems a bit strange. It seems out of, out of character for God. Why would he do such a thing? So tonight we will be considering the end of Exodus 4, Exodus 4, verses 18 through 32. And our theme for this evening will be the start to Moses' mission is surprising and yet very much so directed by God. So we're going to find this really is the start to Moses' mission, what God sent him to do last week. This is the very beginning uh, of Moses putting this into action. And ultimately, we see it's God putting it into action. I, I want to make very clear as we work our way through the text, as I think the text is making it very clear that God is directing this. God is initiating it. God is behind this all the way. As last week, we saw God promise to be with Moses. And we see that very much so in this passage as God is behind this. He is at the very beginning of Moses' being sent, Moses going. God is being true to his word. And yet there are surprises along the way. I've already kind of given us a heads up as to what one of them is, but I think there are several surprises that we find in, in these verses, some things that we wouldn't expect God to do. So let's move to our passage. Our study will be to conclude Exodus for this evening. And our text begins as God sends Moses. Follow along as I read Exodus 4, 18 through 20. It says, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. So last week's passage ended with God telling Moses he would use Aaron too, and he sent Moses off. And we're not told at that point what Moses was thinking. Okay, if, if he said anything back, we're not told that. But our, our narrative picks right up from where we left off last week. And Moses is back in Midian with his father-in-law. If you look at his request again, it seems a bit odd. Okay? He asks if he can go back to Egypt, and his response or his reason is his reason why is to, to say or to see whether they are still alive, whether his people, whether his family is still alive. And we might question, is this all Moses told Jethro? Let me go back to Egypt to see whether 
my people are still alive? We don't know, okay? We're not told any further. Um, we really are left to question why Moses uh, would, would say this. Is it just a cover-up? Maybe he didn't let Jethro in on anything that God had called him to do. Uh, is it just a cover-up, or is, it, is there more to this? We're not, we're not told. We can't be exactly sure. As God has called Moses to do this, and um, can't see if it's any, we don't know if it's any resistance to what God has called him to do, but Moses says, let me go back to Egypt to see whether they are still alive. The second part of this is, is concerning what God says to Moses. So Moses asks or requests to, to be able to go home, and God's words here to Moses I want to stress that we see that, that God shows Moses more grace here. Okay, if you're with us last week, we saw God treated Moses how he did not deserve time and time again. Moses resisted, Moses pushed back, and God continued to, continued to deal with Moses graciously. He, he treated him how he didn't deserve. And I think we see this here as God says, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Okay? Moses had fled from Egypt in, in chapter 2 as his life was on the line. He killed an Egyptian, and the Pharaoh at the time sought his life. Moses got out of there. And as we think about Moses contemplating going back to Egypt, okay, this didn't come up in his conversation between uh, him and God, but this certainly could have been a concern for Moses. What about that death threat that's on my head? What about the people that wanted to kill me? What about the king who would easily kill me if he had the chance. Well, God tells him that all those who desired him to be dead had died. This was no longer an issue. I believe God's words here are words of reassurance, okay? You don't have to worry about the reason that you left Egypt. And then the last thing I want to point out is Moses' staff is mentioned. We're told Moses took his family, a donkey, and the only other item that is mentioned is the staff of God. And don't think this is just said... Um, randomly or, or pointlessly, but rather the staff of God is mentioned as it symbolizes God's power, God's signs that he would use. It's a symbol of God's presence and power with Moses. So as Moses starts this trek as he goes, he takes with him that thing that is symbolizes God's power and God's presence with him. Moses begins his trip to move back home. So as we continue on in these verses, we see that God gives Moses a heads up. And I want to look at these verses kind of one by one or section by section. And the first thing we see is that God speaks of the resistance Moses will meet. Look with me at verse 21. Exodus 4.21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So God shows Moses that he is ultimately in control going forward. And he shows him this in two ways. The first is, God says, all the miracles that I have put in your power. Okay, so again, God is behind this. God is in control of this as all those miracles, all the signs that Moses will do, God has put them in his power. God is the one who is behind these things. But then the second thing, and, and this is one of those surprising aspects to this beginning of Moses' mission, the second thing 
that shows God's control going forward is he says, I will harden his heart. So talking about Pharaoh's heart. I will harden his heart so that he will not, he will not let the people go. Okay, the word harden here speaks of uh, making firm and strong. So God will make firm, will make strong the heart of Pharaoh. This is credited to God here. And, and just kind of previewing later on in the narrative, we're told that Pharaoh would do this exact same thing. So here we're told God would do it. Later on in the narrative in Exodus 8, verse 15, it says, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Okay, so we're going to see this word harden. And actually there's three words that are translated into the English in this Exodus narrative here in these beginning chapters as the word harden. There's three Hebrew words that are used uh, that our Eng English translators uh, translate them as harden. This word hardened, these three different words are used again and again and again through these early chapters of Exodus. And here is just the start of them as God says, I will harden his heart. So here specifically considering God's part, we might wonder, why would God do such a thing if he's trying to get the people out of Egypt? So God goes to Moses and he says, Moses, I'm calling you uh, or I'm sending you to bring these people out of the land of Egypt. And now God says, I'm going to harden the person's heart. I'm going to make it firm, make him resistant or more resistant to letting these people go. These things don't seem to add up. So we might wonder, why would God do such a thing if he's trying to get the people of Israel out of Egypt? Is he sinning by doing this? So why would he do this? But, but further, if he's making, God, making Pharaoh's heart hard, is he sinning? Okay, this is really kind of, just to pique our interest, to, to preview what's coming, we'll consider these questions and just the whole subject of hardening or the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in a later sermon as it, we need a lot more time to do so. But I also want to wait till we get to some of those several instances as this is just one, but we're, we're going to see this time and time again throughout this narrative. And we're going to deal with this a lot further and think about what exactly does this mean for God to do so? What does it mean for Pharaoh to do so? We'll deal with this in the weeks to come. But for now, the point I want to make is that we see God's sovereign hand on this situation even on the all-powerful Pharaoh who Moses will be confronting. So this is even just a... In, in one sense, we could see this as a, um, a deterrent to Moses, but at the same time, I think it should be a reassurance that God is in control. God is even in control of Pharaoh's heart who Moses will confront. So we see he speaks of the resistance, and he also speaks of the relationship that God has to Israel. He says this in Exodus 4, through 23. So just continuing on in God's speech here. It says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. So first I want to point out that we learn what we learn about Israel's relationship to God. God refers to him as his firstborn son, speaking of a close, familial, intimate relationship that God has with his people, Israel. This is a special, a unique relationship, just like if you think about your child, okay, a firstborn, but also any child of yours, 
they have a special relationship. They have a, you have a more intimate, more close, your heart probably goes out to them more so than other children. You have a special relationship with your child, and that is the idea here. And we saw this last week, uh, not necessarily this language, but we saw these ideas uh, of God's compassion, further of God's inheritance. As we think about a firstborn child receiving an inheritance, last week we got these ideas of compassion and inheritance in Exodus chapter 3, and I'll begin at verse 7. It starts with the compassion side. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. So there's kind of the compassion side. He knows their suffering. He's coming down to do something about it. And here's the inheritance side. Just like a firstborn son would receive an inheritance, the land from his father, it goes on in verse 8 to say, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have, excuse me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So we get this language now, and we get this, this terminology that Israel is, is God's firstborn son. So showing that they have a unique, a special relationship compared to other nations. And just to bring in this text from last week, we see these ideas. And then the second thing I want to point out concerning this relationship is God is transferring their service. Okay, if you look with me at Exodus 4, 23, the part that I have underlined there, it says, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Okay, so this is what Moses is to say to Pharaoh, that God says, let my son go that he may serve me. So this is something we could easily pass over. Yeah, God's delivering them. God's rescuing them so that he can, they can serve and worship him. But what I want to point out here is serve here is the same word that we already saw used back in Exodus 1, speaking of Israel's service to Pharaoh in Egypt, and it's just translated in Exodus 1 as working as slaves. Okay, look with me at Exodus 1, 13 through 14, and, and the part I have bolded is the same word in the Hebrew, it's just translated in a phrase here in English. It said this in Exodus 1, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Same word as our text then in Exodus 4 when God says, let my son go that he may serve me. We find in the book of Exodus that God is taking Israel from serving Pharaoh to serving himself. He's moving Israel from working for Pharaoh in Egypt to worshiping him. We see a transfer of their service being laid out for us here in the, the beginning chapters of Exodus. And then the last thing that we find in these verses as God gives Moses a heads up is, see, he ultimately gives him a heads up of something that's going to happen uh, a little while later as God speaks of the tenth and the last plague. Look with me at Exodus 4.23. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. 
So again, this is what Moses is supposed to relay to Pharaoh from God. So in relation to God calling Israel his firstborn son, he alludes to a threat he will have Moses make, and that is that if Pharaoh will not release Israel, then God will kill his firstborn son. Which as you think about it, this would be the son that would ascend to the throne one day. He would take over for his, his father, one whom Pharaoh greatly loved. God would threaten to kill him if Pharaoh continued to refuse. So God's giving him a pretty detailed preview of the future of what would take place. So through these three verses, we see that things are not going to be easy. Pharaoh is going to resist. Pharaoh is not going to give in quickly or easily. And even things are going to get ugly if it gets to that point that a firstborn son is going to die, the firstborn son of the king of Egypt. But in the midst of all this, we see that God is calling all the shots. Okay, he's showing to Moses, I am in charge. I am in control. I'm calling the shots here as he says, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. I'll kill his firstborn son. We see that God is completely in control which, as I said, should be reassuring to Moses. This heads-up should give him confidence. And we're not given his reaction here. We don't know if it, if it reassures him, but it, it certainly should have. So we move to the next section, and as we think about the story so far, I've even given us a heads-up to it, but as you think about what we've read now in these verses, what we find next, I would say, just comes out of nowhere. Okay, God moves in for the kill of Moses. So again, as we began considering, God is going to work through this man. He's called him in, in the previous verses. And even as we, we think about all that we've seen in God in Exodus so far, God had decided it's time to inter intervene. It's time to step in to the plight of his people. In Exodus 2, 23 through 25, it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry of rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Okay, this comes at the tail end of seeing all of Israel's suffering, all of their hardship, we're told that God is about to intervene, and now what we saw last week is we know who God's going to intervene with, who he's going to step in with. So as we're considering the flow of what we've seen, this is a startling verse that we come to. And we find another confrontation of God to Moses. Look with me at Exodus 4.23. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. So the last confrontation was in the burning bush when God sent Moses. This is another confrontation now, and it's a hostile confrontation. Both are amazing events of God showing up to Moses, but here we see it's, it's, it's not a good thing. As we're told in the second half of verse 24 that God is looking to kill Moses. So Moses and his family are going as God asked after much reluctance and quite the back and forth between God and Moses. Moses is going. He's heading back to Egypt just as God had called him to do. He's carrying out God's plans. And along the way, God comes and he's seeking to kill Moses. Why? Moses had resisted, he had refused, and yet God did not kill him then. So if you think back to last week, we might wonder, 
Why didn't, just, why didn't God kill him then? He, he resisted his will. He's, he's pushing back. He's, he's straight up refusing. Why didn't he just kill him then? What would make God act in such a surprising way now? Well, interestingly enough, we're not given any words that God says here. Okay, actually, as we think about this verse and the next two that kind of cover this, this story, it really is a mini story. We're not given a lot, and even the details are, are very, very bare, both here in the English, but even in the Hebrew, it's even more, um, even more bare. For example, in verse 24 here, when it says him, it doesn't specify that it is Moses that is being talked about. Considering the fact that in the verses before, God has been addressing Moses, Moses has been the focal point. I believe that Moses is who is being referred to as him here, but we're going to see in the next verse that someone else is, else is mentioned who him could go to, though I do think it certainly goes to Moses. But my point is, this is a very bare. We're not given a, a lot of, of details in this story but we are given enough, I believe, to understand this and even, I think, to gain some very valuable points from. So we'll move on to verse, the next verse in this story. Moses' wife circumcises their son. Look with me at verse 25. Then Savora took a flint and caught, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So we're told that God prepares to kill Moses. And as I said, we're not given the words of God if he said any at, at this point. But we're told right afterwards that Sephora, Moses' wife, cut off the foreskin of her son, that she circumcises her son. This seems to be where Moses' fault is found. It says that God is seeking his life, and then immediately Sephora does this act. Since Moses is the one that God is about to kill, and all the things that are done, all the things that are done is, is to circumcise their child, it seems that Sephora somehow realizes that Moses' life was at stake because he had not circumcised their son. So we don't know how she realized this, um, but we see she does it. Since Sephora does it and not Moses himself, some believe. This was because God had actually struck Moses with a, with a plague or with a disease, that he was incapacitated. He couldn't do this himself. We're not told this in the story, so again, don't want to assume, don't want to speculate why Moses doesn't do this and why his wife does. We're not told in this story. We're just left to wonder. But also related to the fact, if you look again at verse 25, it says, Then Sephora took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, and then it says, And touched Moses' feet with it. Okay, I believe this shows that Sephora is, is circumcising her son to save her husband's life. Okay, she's doing this to deliver him. Okay, for some reason he doesn't do it, but she does it. She touches his feet with it to save her husband's life. And at this point, as we think about what we've been told so far, we might wonder what is the big deal? Okay, why would God seek to kill Moses because he had not circumcised his son? Why would God take such an act or, or such an act of disobedience so seriously? Well, we have to look back at Genesis for this. And in our studies so far in these several sermons in, in Exodus, 
We've been doing this quite a lot. It's becoming a common thing to do in our study of the book of Exodus to look back and see what Genesis says. What does, that, what does Genesis have to tell us about this situation? Well, we'll look at Genesis 17, and, and we find that God made a covenant with Abraham, okay, Moses' uh, ancestor. With Abraham, he had made a relationship where he committed himself to Abraham and to his descendants, and we find God's side of this, this covenant or this relationship, this relationship of commitment that he declared to Abraham. And I'll read for us Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, to show what God says he'll do for Abraham, and then we'll see where circumcision comes into it. Genesis 17, starting at verse 1, says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into, into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So God in, in these verses is telling Abraham what he'll do for him, what his side of, of this covenant, this relationship of commitment involves. And, and he says he's going to make him the father of a multitude of nations. He's going to give him many, many descendants and even make him into to nations. Kings will come from him, he says. And then in the second, the second part of it, he tells him that he's going to give him land, okay, which we've thought about before. And he even at the very end there says, and I will be their God. He will be God to Moses' descendants. So God says, this is what I'm going to do for you, Moses. And then now in, in the second half that I want us to look at, God tells Abraham what he needs to do. So he says, this is what I'll do for you. Abraham, this is your side of it. We find what they were commanded to do to symbolize this relationship. In verse 9, I'll begin reading. It says, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So God commanded Abraham that every man needs to be circumcised. Okay, that is Abraham's side of it. That is his family's side of this covenant. This would be a sign of, of their relationship between God and between them as his people. When a male baby was born at eight days or when it was born, and then once it was eight days old, 
They were to be circumcised. And we see that this was a non-negotiable when it came to God's relationship with Abraham. He didn't say, you can do this if you want, Abraham. This would be nice, but it's a non-negotiable. As if you look at verse 14 again, it says, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. He'd be separated from the family of Abraham as he had broken his commitment and his relationship with the Lord. This would be viewed as an act of disobedience. It would be as if he was saying that he had no relationship with the Lord. Okay, it was a symbol, but, but yet it was important. And it was showing that he, he was refusing or disobeying or rebelling in having a relationship with the Lord. So this is why God was coming to kill Moses. Moses had not upheld God's covenant command. Moses had let something slip that was vitally important to his relationship with the Lord, circumcision. Okay, he had not performed circumcision on his son. So Sephora circumcises their son, and we see that God pulls back from killing Moses. It says in verse 26, So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So the conclusion is that God leaves him alone. God doesn't kill him. God turns from his his plan to kill Moses. He backs off. God does this in response to the circumcision. So again, I think we can see why God is coming after Moses' life. It's it's because he hadn't circumcised his son. I'll just say this as a passing point. I was going to go into it more, but for sake of time, I just want us to notice that God does this in response, not to an act of Moses, but to the act of his wife, who wasn't an Israelite. She wasn't taught the Hebrew ways, which included circumcision, and yet somehow she realizes what needed to be done. She steps in. She does it. She saves her husband's life. And again, just a passing point, not the first woman to save Moses' life, and I think she's even an example as we think about our marital relationships of of a wife's impact upon her husband, maybe not necessarily saving his physical life, but maybe saving him or or working for his good when it comes to his spiritual well-being. I think she can stand as an example for this. But again, in verse 26, and we saw it in verse 25, it says, It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. So this this phrase, a bridegroom of blood, was mentioned in verse 25 as well. And as I I studied this, as I looked at what people had, had to say concerning this, this is a pretty unknown phrase. What exactly does she mean by a bridegroom of blood? We can't know exactly what is sure, at least in my study, I I didn't come to something that was convincing to know exactly what she means by this, but we do know it, it definitely has to do with this circumcision. As it says, it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. She's referring to something about this, this circumcision when she says this. So as we think about this short but startling episode, God makes it abundantly clear in this episode that his leader must be in a right relationship with him. If Moses is going to go for it, if he's going to continue on this mission and lead the people of Israel to serve God, 
then he must be serving God himself. If Moses will be God's prophet and leader calling the people of Israel to obey, he must obey God himself. God shows how serious he takes this that Moses does such a thing as it almost costs him his life. We'll come back to this at the very end to kind of wrap up with a point of application for us. But the last two sections I want us to consider as we continue on in these verses is we see God send Aaron. As it says in Exodus 4, 27 through 28, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. So we find here God's call of Aaron. And these words are really out of order chronologically as they would have taken place back in verses 14 and 16. In verse 14, it specifically said, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. Meaning that Aaron's on his way. He's coming already. He's made this journey. So our verses here in, in verse 27 is when God actually came to Aaron before he started this journey saying, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. Showing that Aaron, as I mentioned last week, kind of as a passing point, that Aaron was not plan B. Okay, God knew all along Moses was resist, going to resist. He was going to refuse. Aaron was part of God's plan all along. Then our chapter ends, and we find that as God said it, said would happen, surely happens. Exodus 4, 29 through 31, it says, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Who could have asked for a better beginning? Okay, back and forth, Moses and God went. Last week, Moses continued to refuse and, and resist, and, and God kept go, pushing back and, and, and telling Moses to go. Who could have asked for a better, better, better beginning to Moses' public ministry? It was received. It was looked upon with favor. The people responded, and they worshiped with God. Unfortunately, we're going to find out next week that this was just a honeymoon phase. Okay, that when things start to go south, it's Moses and Aaron that are accused and no longer is Israel so receptive to their message. Just want to point out the fact that, and we'll just read the underlying portion, just want to point out the fact that here at the end of our chapter, this is exactly what God said would happen. In verse 18 there in Exodus 3, it said, God saying, and they will listen to your voice. Okay, so go to Israel. Okay, go to the elders. They're going to listen to you. They're going to believe you, at least at first. And Moses pushed back last week. Moses' pushback was, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. So he denied what God said. He said, no, God, that is not going to happen. Well, we find he was wrong. Moses was wrong. God was right. God knows the future. Moses does not, which is just a good thing for us to keep in our minds as it comes to our lives and our own worries. So our section tonight, 
gets us started on Moses' mission. He's moving back home. He's going to Egypt with a purpose, God's purpose. God initiated and directed it the whole way. There were some surprises along the way, but we see it ends with a welcome. And even further, a welcome that turns to worship. That's what chapter 4 ends on. And how I want us to conclude tonight is I want us to consider Moses' near-death experience just a little bit further. And I want us to think about what does it have to do with our lives. Moses was a leader, so it certainly applies to our leaders here in this church, our elders. Further, our deacons, or if you lead in any capacity, this applies to you. But I believe every Christian, no matter what area or way you serve, should learn from Moses' failure. In that lesson, I'll sum up and say, or begin by summing up to say, if we want to faithfully serve God or lead his people, our relationship with him is vitally important. Okay, consider Moses and his almost being put to death for failure to circumcise his son. And again, as I've done in the past weeks, I want to read a quote from Christopher Wright as he, he sums this up very nicely as we think about Moses' failure. He says this, If Moses had failed to do so, okay, that's referring to his circumcision. If Moses had failed to do so, it was an act of disobedience. And God would not allow a disobedient Moses to be the instrument of his redemptive will. If Moses was to bring Israel into a right relationship with God, with their God, he must be in a right relationship with God himself. So we see the necessity of this, how serious this is because of the fact that Moses was almost put to death. So this should wake us up this evening and cause us to consider, how is my relationship with the Lord? Am I trying to serve him without pursuing a relationship with him? Am I trying to lead God's people while living in habitual, unrepentant sin? And I was going to take us to 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 16, but we've run out of time. Uh, and just to, to quickly say, in this passage, Paul is telling Timothy, he's, he's telling him things he needs to do, commands he needs to do. Some, some are talking about his responsibilities as a pastor, as he leads the church of Ephesus. He's giving him instructions such as, he's saying, command and teach these things, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. So he's laying out, this is how you need to serve. This is how you need to lead Timothy. But also in this passage, in these verses, he says things like, train yourself in godliness. Set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Keep a close watch on yourself. He's saying, make sure you're growing in godliness. Make sure you're focusing on your relationship with the Lord. So we find here the lesson that if, if you serve well, then first you must be doing well in your relationship with the Lord. They go hand in hand. I cannot serve as a pastor, preaching, visiting, counseling, leading others to grow in godliness without doing so myself. You cannot think you're doing well if you serve on many committees. Meanwhile, you're a rampant gossip. You cannot think you're fine if you are an elder and yet you're giving in continually to your anger. You can't think you're faithfully serving the Lord by teaching the Bible. Meanwhile, you do not talk with the Lord in prayer or read his word on a regular basis. You're not fostering your relationship with him. The point is to faithfully serve. We must be striving for a devoted walk with God. 
So I'd ask you as we close this evening to consider from your life, is there a disconnect in your mind between serving and your relationship with the Lord? Are you serving while you continually give in to sin knowingly and purposefully? Are you in a position of leadership while directly disobeying God in private or in your home? That's what I want to leave us with tonight. From Moses' start to following God's commission, it's, it's a shocking, even unsettling attack upon his life, and it's because he ignored God's command, commandment. He, he ignored something that was vitally important for him to serve, for him to lead, and that was his own relationship with the Lord and following his commandments. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this text that shows us how you sent Moses and how from the very beginning you were behind it. You were with Moses. Your presence was was very much seen as you spoke with him, as as you interacted with him, even as we saw a near-death experience as you went after him to kill him. Lord, I pray that we would be reminded of the fact that You are directing, you are behind the ways in which you've called us to go. As we thought about last week, as we've been sent to share your word, Lord, help us to be reminded of of the fact that you are with us. Your presence is with us and you are even empowering our lips as we go and share the gospel with a lost world. But Lord, also as we've thought about tonight, uh, Moses' failure to circumcise his son as he ignored, as he ultimately disobeyed this command uh, that you made very plain and showed that it was vitally important for his relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be fostering, be growing, be striving to walk more and more faithfully in our relationship with you, following your word, talking with you as we pray, reading your word and, and communicating with you. Lord, I pray that our relationship with you and growing in godliness would be our first priority, and then to serve, then to lead within your church. Lord, wake us up. Help us see this uh, from Moses' almost dying experience uh, through his failure to circumcise his son. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to get this, help us to see this, and I pray that there would not be a disconnect in our mind between our relationship with you and serving you. Lord, we just thank you for this time that we could spend in your word. We thank you for the ways that we could worship you and pray that you be with us this week. And in your name I pray, amen. Thank you for joining us this evening and you are dismissed.